I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this evening. So the Super Bowl is coming up in about a week. As we heard this morning, the Heidemans are gracefully, graciously, I should say, opening up their home for us to enjoy that game. And inevitably, every year, at the end of the game, Super Bowl that is, as always, there will be a, a young woman on the field uh, with a mic ready to get in the face of another coach or or player of the winning team, to ask, man, how are you feeling right now after that big win? Right? They'll ask someone of a, you're sitting there watching it, and you're like, well, how do you think they're feeling right now? But usually she'll say, how are you feeling right now? Or, man, what's going through your head? And often what these players will co- or coaches will do at some point in that mini interview right after the win is they begin to say something to the effect of, well, I couldn't have done it without fill-in-the-blank, or I have to thank my coach and my teammates for all the hard work we put into it. He never boasts in and of himself. And, and whether that is genuine or not, the, the turn of the glory to someone else, what is taking place there is that individual is realizing that while they might be really gifted or really talented, they have no room to stand before thousands of people and boast in and of themselves for all of the accomplishments. So they turn the praise or they turn the thanksgiving to their coach, to their teammates. Can you think of a time when you might have done this? After some sort of event, you know, that we have here at this church often, it'll be, oh, we want to thank so-and-so for setting up all the chairs. We want to thank so-and-so for preparing the meals for us. I can remember a very emotional time in my life. Uh, it happened not too long ago when I danced with my mother, okay, at my wedding. Now, she's actually here this evening, all right, so don't start crying because then I'll start crying as well, all right? So um, out of the emotions that were overcoming me in that moment, it dawned on me, my dad is watching, my family is watching, it dawned on me for the first time in my life that I literally owe everything that I have and everything that I am to my parents. Right? Without them, I, I, at the beginning of my life, I wouldn't have been able to feed myself. I couldn't change myself when I needed to be changed. Okay, the man who I am today, yes, absolutely, to God be the glory. But apart from my parents, they deserve the praise. They deserve the glory for that. My parents deserve all the praise. They deserve all the thanksgiving for making me the person that I am today. And as we begin to work our way through 1 Corinthians, what we're going to notice is that these believers are very gifted believers. Um, God had sovereignly gifted these believers with many spiritual gifts. But these spiritual gifts and their gifting, their abilities, it got to their head. They were good, and they knew it. They had never come to the point in their spiritual journey to step back and realize that everything they had, all the gifts that they had, was actually directly coming from the gracious hand of God, and there was absolutely no room for boasting 
in and of themselves. I had David read 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. You'll notice Paul says this, What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, why are you sitting here boasting about this gifting that you have or this ability that you have when all you are was given to you as a gift? What I think Paul is pushing us here towards in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, is this truth right here. When you and I understand the grace of God, there is no room for boasting, only thanksgiving. When you and I, as believers, when we understand the grace of God in the past, in the present, in the future, there is no room for boasting, but only thanksgiving. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll read verses 4 through 9 this evening. This will be our text. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, if you remember, briefly, we spent a couple weeks ago talking much of the historical background that was going on in the city of Corinth and, and, and Paul's occasion for writing this letter. So I'll spare us of another historical background. Okay, but I do want to refresh our memory that Paul, the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul is responding to a report that he had received about these believers. So chapter 1 through 6 is he's responding to some sort of some news that he overheard about these believers in Corinth. From chapter 7 to 15, though, Paul specifically says now about the issues that you wrote about. Paul had most likely received a letter with some issues in it, and he is addressing these issues. So we looked at verses 1 through 3 a few weeks ago, and now this brings us to the thanksgiving section, which is very typical of Paul's letter. It's very common for Paul to thank God for, his, for the converts when he writes to them. You think of the letter of Thessalonians and Romans and Colossians and Philippians, Philemon. The only letter that does not have a thanksgiving, though, is Galatians. And that probably gives us a little insight into the issue that was at hand. But there was also a, there's a similar pattern to these thanksgivings. Uh, Paul gives thanks to God always for these recipients, for certain reasons, which he then develops. And this is here what we see in Corinth, sort of. Got a little sort of on there, maybe a little asterisk. Okay, it's similar, but it is different. Similar to the letter to the church in Galatia, the letter to the Corinthians is written for an occasion of warning. It's written for the occasion of correcting or admonition. Their moral condition of, of these believers here in Corinth were off. We see that in chapters 1 through 11. Their abuse of their spiritual giftings in 12 through 14 and their doctrinal error that they were not sitting around anticipating a resurrection. We see that in chapter 15. So this leaves us then to expect why in the world would Paul have something to thank God for if he is going to spend the majority of the letter 
admonishing these individuals, warning them, seeking to correct them. But this isn't the case. He still thanks the Lord for them. This this then should cause us to ask ourselves, well, if he's going to thank the Lord for these believers, what is he going to thank the Lord for? You might be thinking, as I am, well, these Corinthians believers, they need to know they're wrong. They need to be set straight. They need to be be put straight. Not praised for for what good they are. We might think to ourselves, well, is Paul sort of buttering these believers up so then he can sort of later on in the letter drop the hammer and it won't hurt as bad? I think the reason that Paul begins his letter with thanksgiving is to redirect this self-satisfied, boastful condition that these believers had reached. And we'll see this later on in the letter. But notice with me just some observations before we jump in here. Notice how Paul says this entire thanksgiving is a thanksgiving that is God-oriented and Christ-centered. In other words, everything these believers had came from God and was given to them in, in, in and through Christ. Notice in verse 4, I give thanks to my God. Okay, now every verb moving from 4, 5, 6 all the way through 9, you could insert God as the subject. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ, that in every way God enriched you in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed. God was the one confirming this so that you're not lacking in any gift. God was the one who gave them so that they would not be lacking as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, God, who will sustain you until the end, guiltless in the day of Christ. And then again in verse 9, God is faithful. Now, for those of us who read the scriptures often, and we always see people reference to God and to Christ, in a span of ten verses, Paul references God seven times and Christ ten times. And I I think this should give us a little bit of, this should be significant significant to us into the issues of what Paul is getting at. And I think here's what it is. Everything that these Corinthian believers were and everything that these Corinthian believers ever would be was due to, to the grace of God and in and through the work of Jesus Christ so that there was no room for boasting. And that is exactly what they were doing. They were taking their giftings that they had from the Lord and they were boasting in them as if they were something special. So in a very helpful, gracious, and loving way, Paul is trying to redirect their focus and saying, no, God is the reason why you are gifted. God is the reason that you are even saved in the first place. So this is how Paul begins a a conversation with a church that is self-satisfied, prideful. He turns their eyes back to the very source of their identity, their riches in Christ, who is God the Father. And instead of praising this gifted church, he pays tribute for what God has done in the past, what he is currently doing in the present, and what he will do in the future. The future. So that's how we'll split up these verses this evening. God's grace in the past, God's grace in the present, God's grace in the future, and then we'll see the gift of grace wrapped in faithfulness. So let's look at God's grace in the past. Verses 4 through 6 say this, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, 
even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So I think as you can already tell, this section is lathered, if you will, in thanksgiving. It is a thanksgiving that Paul is directing towards God. The focus of Paul's prayer is the fact that these believers have been graciously gifted with, with these gifts from God. Notice the second thing is, he says, I give thanks to my God always. If you're holding a Christian standard Bible or an, and an NIV, it actually says, I always thank God. So are we to think that, that are we to conclude here that Paul just does nothing else but sit around and thank God for the Corinthian believers? I don't think that's the case because there were church plant, churches planted and he had to make a living for himself, so he was probably a tent maker, and he prayed for other churches. Okay, so I don't think that's what we should conclude. But I think what Paul's doing here is he's intending to make it clear that he always striving to continually make an effort to pray for these believers, and when he does, he thanks the Lord for them. Notice then what Paul is thanking God for. He's thanking God for the grace that has been given to these believers when they received Christ. Notice, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So when these believers turned in faith and repentance to Jesus Christ for salvation, they received grace. Now, while we often think of grace in a general sense as being God's favor that is poured out on an undeserved and unworthy people, I think Paul uses grace here in a different way. I think Paul is referencing this idea of the grace of God uh, in reference to the giftings that they have received. Um, Look at the beginning of verse 5. So I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. What is this grace? He's explaining to us this grace. That is... In every way, you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. The word that Paul uses here for grace is actually a same root that he will turn around and use in other letters to refer to gifts. Okay, so in, in, in Romans, Romans chapter 12, it's not far at all, just flip back a few pages. Okay, Romans chapter 12 and verse 6. He says, having gifts, okay, same word that he uses back when he refers to the grace of God. Say, so having, having um, gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches, teaching. Okay, so Paul uses this same word in another spot uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 3. Paul uses the same word grace to refer to a gift. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 3, I'll just read it. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredited by letter to carry your grace or your gift to uh, Jerusalem. Okay, so it seems as though that the grace of God that Paul is thanking God for in the lives of these believers is very specific to their giftings. Notice in verse 5, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. We'll see later on in this letter that this grace of God or these spiritual gifts are actually something that these 
Corinthian believers actually tended to prize very highly, turned inward, and began to use them to boast in. But Paul, instead of rejoicing in these believers and their giftings, he reminds them that these, these gifts are given to them by God. They come from his gracious hand, and therefore there is no room for boasting. Remember the dilemma. Paul is seeking to bring these arrogant believers back to a place of humility so that they might turn around and thank God and praise him for their gifting, not rather boast in themselves. Now, notice the gifts that Paul brings attention to in verse 5. It says that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Notice Paul references here the gift of speech and knowledge. He doesn't talk about their love. He doesn't talk about their faith. He doesn't talk about their hope that he does in, like he does in 1 Thessalonians or uh, to the church at Philippi or in Colossae. But these graces or these gifts of speech and knowledge. Now, we shouldn't necessarily conclude that just because Paul doesn't thank the Lord for love or hope or um, faith that there wasn't any of these in this church. But it does seem like throughout the letter that Paul seeks to correct a lack of love, right? In, in, in chapter uh, 13, he says these gifts will be done away with, but, but love is the greatest of these. Right? In, in chapter 8 and chapter 13, Paul is exalting love over the gift of speech, over the gift of knowledge. But I think the reason, one of the reasons that Paul narrows in on these gifts of speech and knowledge is because they were clearly evident in the church at Corinth and that these gifts were being used in negative ways. In light of the reference in the beginning of verse 7, so that you're not lacking in any gift. It's most likely that Paul is referring again to these spiritual gifts that had been given them, the gift of speech, the gift of knowledge. Other gifts that are referenced in chapter 12, 13, and 14 are the gifts of knowledge, wisdom, tongues, or prophecy. So Paul continues to, in this Thanksgiving, set up little foreshadowings for what he's going to be discussing later on. So by Paul drawing these gifts of speech and knowledge sort of at this stage of of his letter and thanking God for them will serve to remind the Corinthians that Paul's problem with their speech and knowledge has to do with their use of them, not the fact that God had actually given them to them. Paul was thankful that the Lord had graciously blessed these believers with these gifts. What Paul wasn't thankful for is how they had abused them. Rather than using the gifts that the Lord had given them, they were using them to uh, gloat, to boast in and of themselves. It's a little bit hard to understand for, for us in the, in the day and age that we live in, but if we could jump back into modern-day Corinthian society, there is a very high value on the art of rhetoric the power of reason and, and logic and, and persuasion. So what, pro, what Paul is most likely encountering here in the church at Corinth is an obsession over rhetoric, over wisdom, over knowledge to the point that it was actually distorting and compromising the gospel. Right? If, if we could put it in modern terms, these believers were using these gifts to flex, if you will, okay, 
on the unbelievers of the day so that they could look like they were something special. And in reality, it was hindering things in two ways. It was hindering their, their witness to the community, and it was hindering their witness to the body of Christ. Because later Paul will actually tell us that the gifts that God had given these believers were used for the purpose of edification. And so these believers had turned these gracious gifts in on themselves as something to be used to be admired for a, for a, a status longed for by the elites of the day. And Paul will later show us the reason for these gifts. But for now, Paul seeks to just, once again, redirect their focus from their own spiritual gifts back to who gave you these gifts, back to Christ, who was the one who threw Christ in and his work that they were able to know God and be gifted by him. Notice what else these gifts um, that Paul says about them in verse 6. If you have an ESV, you have somewhat of an authorial insert. It's sort of like a, you have like a parenthetical. You have two M dashes on either side of this. It says, so uh, in 5, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So this statement gives the result of these gifts. What did these gifts do? Paul's saying that the Corinthian believers, when they received these gifts at their conversion, Paul was thankful for them because they actually gave evidence of the fact that the gospel that Paul preached actually took root in these believers' lives and they truly were sons and daughters of God. These gifts actually had a confirming effect that the message that Paul preached was true and the God of the message truly was real. In other words, the message of Jesus Christ and its ability to change lives was validated in the clearness of these Corinthians, the believers, in their, in their giftedness. So what Paul's doing is he's thanking God for confirming his hard work in preaching the gospel to these believers by God giving them these gifts. So when Paul preached about Christ to these Corinthians, we read of it in Acts chapter 18, God guaranteed Paul's testimony to these believers that the gospel truly is real by enriching these believers with these gifts. So their gifts were in reality a result of them believing the message of Christ. So that's God's grace in the past. But let's look at God's grace in the present, beginning of verse 7. Notice how Paul interprets these gifts. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Interestingly, Paul does not congratulate them for their abundant spiritual giftings from God. He simply says, well, I know that you guys don't fall short in this area. Later in in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul will make it clear that each believer receives a gift for the service of edification in the body of Christ. None will be lacking. Because in, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says that the Spirit of God, by His will, gives to each and every individual believer a gift so that they might use it for the edification of the body. So Paul continues to see these gifts as evidence of 
grace. And God's grace among them had been lavishly dispensed. As Paul says, you're certainly not lacking in them. Paul will later instruct them uh, in the letter what this giftedness means for them. The gifts come for the upbuilding of the church, not the selfish ways that they were abusing them. Just because them as Christians were gifted with wisdom didn't make them better than another Christian who was gifted with knowledge. And just because one Christian had a gift of fill-in-the-blank didn't make them necessarily better than a Christian with another gift. But thanksgiving, and Paul, as Paul comes here in verse 7, so that you're not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving, the thanksgiving that Paul displays here for these spiritual gifts, is not the final or only gracious gift of God. There is something to come. Notice the creative shift that that Paul takes to make it clear that these believers, being enriched with these certain gifts, did not mean that they had some sort of, they they had somehow arrived. Paul's purpose here is to clear up their understanding. He asserts there that there is more to come so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the grace that these believers had received on earth was no comparison to the grace that they were headed for. Their status as those who were redeemed by Christ and gifted by His Spirit are those who eagerly wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The goal of this new life of grace that these Corinthian believers had stepped into, to which God had called them, the goal of it still lied in the future. And as these believers wait, they were to use these gifts, as we'll find out later in 1 Corinthians, as Paul goes into it, they were to use these gifts for the edification of others, not to bring praise to themselves. Paul speaks of these believers here as those who eagerly await the revealing of Jesus Christ, almost as a reminder as as the the gifts that you have received, they're not the end. There is something yet to come. You are ever eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. Have you ever eagerly awaited for something? I remember when I was younger, around Christmas time, all my family would, would come in for Christmas. Uh, probably Joey and Julie and Brooke when she was much younger, but I remember the eager anticipation of them getting there because I'd only get to see them like once a year. And I'd be at my grandparents' house and my grandma's, as every good woman does when company's about to come, she's frantically running around vacuuming, you know, the counter or something. I don't know. Um... And you have this eager anticipation. Right? I, I remember if they were coming on a Thursday or a Friday, I didn't want to go to school, and school could have been terrible. But I knew that my family was coming at the end of the day, so it didn't really matter how my day was going. I, I knew it was going to end in something good. I didn't mind at all vacuuming or doing the dishes or cleaning up that day because I knew it was a means to the end. Like, if I get this done, that means, oh, they're coming. If there was one thing that slips my mind more than anything, 
It's the coming day when our Lord and Savior returns in all of his glory. We will see him face to face. And our salvation will be fully and finally realized. But I think Paul's point here in bringing up the fact that, hey, this is not it. There is something to come. Is these believers had taken these gifts and said, yeah, this is, this is the best that it gets. Look at us. And they were forgetting that there was work to be done. To eagerly wait and to expect something is to be busy about the house, getting it ready, cleaning for when family comes. It's not just sitting around waiting. What if we lived with a, a constant anticipation of the Lord's return so that we might understand our giftings correctly here at our church, to be busy about the work that he has called us to do to edify our body? What if we lived in constant anticipation of the Lord's return and the glorious realities that he brings when he returns? We will be made like him on that day. Every tear will be wiped away. No more pain, no more suffering. What hope we have as believers. We have all been gifted by God's Spirit. Just because we here at our church, we wouldn't necessarily say that the certain gifts that are referred to in chapters 12 through 14, are necessar- God is continuing to give those to our church. But what Paul does conclude in chapter 12, that every believer does have a gift, and it is to be used for the edification of the church. We have all been gifted by God's Spirit to use our gifts as we eagerly await the return of our Lord and Savior. Let's look lastly at God's grace in the future. As believers await the glorious day when Christ is revealed, Paul thanks God that these believers will be kept. God's grace will sustain them to survive until that day, that great day of the Lord. Verse 8, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The day of the Lord is a, it's a prevalent Old Testament reference. In Joel, in Amos, in Ezekiel, it's the day when God is going to wrap up history. God, the Son of Man, you read it in, in Daniel chapter 7, he will come back to judge the earth. He will destroy his enemies. He will gather his people into eternal rest in victory over their enemies. The day that Israel anticipated. Before the Corinthians... Just as God had confirmed their acceptance of the gospel by bestowing upon them these gifts of grace, these spiritual gifts in verse 6, so will God sustain and confirm them to the end, and they will be guiltless on that day. The same expression used in verse 6 is the same expression in verse 8. Just as God had confirmed that they were saved by gifting them with spiritual gifts, so he will be the one to sustain them or confirm them on the last day. And it's not that we'll just make it to the end, but we will be guiltless in that day. Notice again that Paul thanks God that these believers will not only be sustained, but they will be guiltless in that day. I I liked one word that a commentator used. We will be established unimpeachable. In other words, only by God's grace in Christ Jesus 
can we and these Corinthian believers be free of any charge when Christ returns to judge the world? What a precious thought when we understand the sinful state, even of these believers, and Paul yet is still saying, on that day, you will stand guiltless before the judge. Whatever their faults and even their sin, Paul thanks God that his grace has been at work among them in giving them grace, these grace gifts necessary for this present age and in the securing of their position on Judgment Day when they stand before their judge, guiltless. At the court of the living Lord, what a peace and confidence this should give us all as well, as believers. As those who, because of our sin, deserve eternal separation and eternal punishment, because of God, in His grace, through the work of Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit applying it to our lives through the gifts of faith and repentance, Can we one day be sustained by God's grace so that we might stand guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? This is nothing that you and I can boast in and of ourselves of, but only the grace in God. Notice how Paul wraps this up in verse 9. I'll take the grace of God in the past and the present and the future that we have just discussed and wrap it all in the faithfulness of God. Ask ourselves this question. He says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. How can Paul be sure that these Corinthian believers, of all people, who were very immature in their spiritual state, as we'll see later on in the letter, how can Paul be so sure that these Corinthian believers will be found guiltless on that day? Well, it's because of the three words that he says at the beginning of verse 9. God is faithful. You ever received a gift? Or do you have a, that, that certain person that when you receive a gift from them, you just know it's going to be good? You get that person in your mind. My, I'll use my mother again because she's here tonight. Okay. Out of all the gifts that I receive on Christmas Day, which as you get older, they get less. I don't know if you guys realize that. Um, but out of all the gifts that I get from my mother, I, I, the gifts that were from, you know, cousins, aunt and uncle, you know, not you, Julie. I always love Julie's gifts. Um, <laughs> but out of all the gifts that I would receive, if, if it had a from mom on there, I, I just knew that it was going to be a good gift. Why? Because I knew who it was. I knew who it was. I knew who she was. knew her character. I knew her heart for me, I knew it was going to be a good gift. And so it is that Paul can with such confidence say these things about these believers. He knew those to be true because he knew the God behind the grace being given. Paul is placing his confidence again in one of the most deeply rooted characteristics of God in the Old Testament. That is a God in his faithfulness. The God of Israel was a faithful God, always reliable, always true to himself, who could therefore be counted on to fulfill all of his promises. Deuteronomy 7.9 talks of the faithful God who keeps his covenant. Deuteronomy 32.4 speaks of a reliable God who is never unjust. He's always fair. Isaiah 49 and verse 7, the Holy One of Israel is 
faithful. In this case here, God's character doesn't depend on Old Testament realities, but his character depends on what he has done in the lives of these Corinthian, <clears throat> excuse me, these Corinthian believers and his most recent work in their lives. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This God who had <clears throat> bestowed these gifts of grace on these believers, who, will, who had confirmed their salvation, who will sustain them until the day of Jesus Christ so that they might stand guiltless on that day. This God is faithful. And the God who called these Corinthians will surely complete the good work that he had started in them. You can almost hear Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The calling that Paul is referencing here is what's often understood as the effectual calling. The calling that that God by his spirit, when the gospel is preached, God calls that individual, that sinner, to come and repent. This was a calling that happened to these believers and stems from the faithfulness of God. God not only calls these sinners to himself for forgiveness and eternal life, but he calls them into, notice what it says, he calls them into fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. This idea of fellowship brings with it, it's not, a, it's, not, it's not Paul's favorite word, it's John's favorite word. If you ever read through the book of 1 John, John always talks about our salvation with a word of fellowship. But this idea of fellowship brings with it the idea of a partnership. It implies with it an idea of participation. So to commit to the Son of God, to come to Him in salvation, is to commit in partnership to His body, to His people, to His mission. We often lose significance of certain English words when we read the Scriptures. Um, fellowship is definitely one of them. The idea of fellowship is not the idea of going out for coffee with someone uh, and, and sharing fellowship over that. It's not the idea of, of us having a fellowship meal together or, or talking after church. Paul has in mind here the idea of believers who are found in Christ. They are bound together by being found as brothers and sisters in Christ in the same family, members of the same body, soldiers in the same army, workers in the same harvest fields. And they've been given and tasked with a mission. Believers are partners in the gospel. That's what it means to be fellowshipped, called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. Many of you know that my wife started a coffee business this past summer. Okay? And you could think of our family, because okay, we're all in this together, right? But this business, what are we working for? There's a, there's a common interest, there's a common partnership to work for the success of the business, right? We, any, any relational tiffs that come along the way, we need to get over that for the sake of the success of the business, right? And it happens, right? And so it is, when we are called into fellowship with Christ, we are called to accomplish the mission that Christ has set us to to go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, 
disciple them. So these Corinthian believers and us as well, we have been called by God into a partnership, into a fellowship, working for a task, striving side by side for a mission, for the sake of Christ. So this brings us to the end of our study tonight. And this concludes the opening of Paul's letter. He's about to get into the issues that were going on. But when we understand the grace of God, there is no room for boasting, only thanksgiving. I think this is what Paul is trying to do as he ties every gift that these believers had received back to Christ through the person of, uh, through the source of God. And I think what Paul is seeking to communicate to these believers is if they were correctly understanding God's grace, it will humble them. If they are correctly understanding God's grace, they will have a proper perspective of their giftings. I don't know where you're at tonight, but when you and I truly understand God's grace in our lives, how he has chosen to save us from before he created the world. Ephesians 1 and verse 4 tells us that. As he has, in history, sent his son to accomplish that salvation. As he has, again, worked in time to bring the believers here tonight by the power of the Holy Spirit, gifting them with faith and repentance so that they might truly grasp their salvation as their own. And it doesn't stop there. The grace that God has resurrected us from death to life, so that we might one day be resurrected with our Savior, Jesus Christ, who was the first fruits. He went before us, and we long for that day. That is all of grace. For the believers here tonight, if grace is an ocean, you're swimming in it. This is where we reside. This is, this is what gets us out of bed in the morning. Yes, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 tells us that God had, has beforehand ordained these good works that we are to walk in obedience to him. We have duty as Christians. But before duty, we are privileged. We do not deserve to be a child of God. Our understanding of God's grace in our life has lasting implications for how we view our, 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 our Christian lives. Yes, we strive, we have duty. We follow Jesus Christ like a faithful soldier. He has commissioned us to display good works, fruit of our faith. But before those good works come a place of, wow, it, without God's grace, I would be nothing. If God's grace does not bring myself, bring you as God's child to your knees and say, God, why, why me? Why was I the person who you lavished your grace on? If we don't start there, we can get off track with the giftings that God has, has given us. We can get off track, and I think this is exactly what is happening here in the letter of Corinth and the believers that he was writing to. They had forgotten that everything they had, everything they were, was a result of the grace of God. And so this, way, this is why Paul so, so helpfully ties everything that they were, all the gifts that they had, back to God. When you and I understand the grace of God, there is no room for boasting in and of ourselves, only thanksgiving. So pray this is a, 
This would encourage you this week as you think about your obedience to Jesus Christ. It comes from a place of privilege. Why do we follow in obedience to Jesus Christ? It's because of how good he has been to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and its, its clarity. I pray that you might have used your word this evening to encourage your saints. Father, I pray that you would help us to remember your grace in our lives. We are nothing without you. We would never come to you if it weren't for your grace. Father, we would, we would never walk in obedience if it wasn't for your grace. We would have no hope if it wasn't for your grace. Father, thank you so much for the, the favor that you give us, such an undeserved, unworthy people. I pray that, that your, your grace would, would fuel our obedience this week. For it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. You are dismissed. <laughs>